um, this week. Um, specifically, we have a note from Ms. Deb here, so thank you to all of EBS volunteers this year. We hit a high of 105 kids on Thursday night, um, and just a little below that on Friday night. Um, and we had three children who accepted and committed their life to Christ this week. So we can praise the Lord for that. We made it worth it. Um, VBS could not be possible without all the volunteers giving their time. So thank you all from the bottom of Ms. Deb's heart. And for those of you who were in VBS, we have a slideshow. I know for those of you who were a part of it, you got to see some of the craziness that we all got up to and all the excitement and fun times. Um, for those of you who weren't then, this will be a nice little preview and sneak peek into what the week was like so that next year, you can be part of it too. <laughs> um, but if you turn your attentions to the screens, we have a quick video of a highlights from the week. There's two kingdoms, but they're not the same. There's only one king who will never change. There's a kingdom of lies. Fear and shame and the kingdom of truth where Jesus reigns.
Well, good morning, and again, welcome one, one and all earlier uh, as we started off singing, uh, uh, oh, the blood of Jesus, and there is power in the blood. The blood will never lose its power. Why, do, why are we so excited about the blood? We're talking about Christ Jesus' blood, and it says that there's no forgive it, forgiveness unless blood has been shed. And that's what Jesus did on the cross for us and was buried and rose again on the third day according to scripture. And that's what we taught during VBS this past week. And three kids came and, uh, and talked with us and professed Jesus Christ as their Lord. And was it worth it? Yes. <laughs> was it worth it? it? It definitely was. What's our return of investment? because there was a lot of money poured into this, a lot of time poured into us. What's our return of investment? It's huge, uh, because it's eternal, exactly right. Because, of, uh, because the gospel was preached, the blood of Jesus Christ was preached, his sacrifice was shared, and, uh, and Friday night we again was able to share the gospel with the kids as well as with the parents. And so the seed was even planted. And so our, our investment, our return investment, we may never know, but God knows. And uh, I, I believe we're going to see people in heaven that, that we're able to be here and be part of this. Uh, we got a big thank you um, from Deb and Connor and Amy for all uh, of, our, of all the volunteers' hard work. But also, I would, on behalf of the leadership of this church, and if you don't mind, on your behalf, I would like to thank Deb and Connor and A.B. for all their hard work. They were, there, was a, a couple, there were a couple comments made that um, our VBS is organized so well, it's the best that they've seen. Um, and just a testimony to the dedication of these three people to see that we run a VBS that gives God the glory. So again, thank you, Connor, Deb, and Amy. Well, by way of announcements, we have uh, this connection card. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, please fill it out. We won't track you down. We'll just drop you an email. And uh, thank you for coming. Let us know how we can better serve you and be a blessing to you. On the back, also, for those regular attenders as well as those that are members, uh, you can write prayer requests on here as well. Uh, give feedback, input, whatever you want to do, and give, and you can put it in the, the connection cards box here on the sound booth, or you can put it in the offering plate as it comes by. But we do want to welcome every, each and every one of you. We are so glad you're here. Those are, that are joining us online, we wish you were here, uh, but sometimes we understand that's not possible. Um, so again, we hope that so far you feel welcome. Don't it's okay to come in here as a stranger, but don't leave as a stranger, okay? Uh, tech crew is uh, needed, and uh, audiovisual team needs one to two people to help on Sunday mornings with uh, the audiovisual. Rotates one Sunday a month. Training is free, and it's provided. 
uh, see a deacon or fill out the connection card. And before I go any further and before I forget, Pastor Dan has an announcement to make regarding the men's ministry. And as he comes, I just want to remind the men, too, that um, the first Saturday of each month, each month we uh, meet and pray. And uh, this, uh, in July, uh, we would like to make a drive up to uh, Ron Foote's cabin and have our prayer time up there. And as we go, stop and, and uh, have breakfast first and then pray at, at his cabin and then make our way back home with an ice cream stop. Uh, we like to eat. <laughs> um, so if you would like to join us, that would be this Saturday. But Ron, the, the, the restaurant that he goes to that we were going to go to burnt down or had some kind of renovation. Um, so we're waiting for it to be reopened. And once we get news from Ron, we'll either go this Saturday or sometime in July. If you're interested, talk to me or Ron or even Tom Stouchestite. And uh, we get the details to you. Watch for the Facebook family page as well for any, any changes. Pastor Dan. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Good morning and welcome, everyone. Uh, I'll try to be brief. I may need some help from Connor here. Mark on your calendars the date August the 5th. Um, what uh, the men's ministry team has formed, and we've... We, as, as we meet together, we have breakfast, we, we, uh, we encourage our men, we build our men up, and, and the last meeting we had, we, actually it was a meeting before, we were kind of thinking outside the box, and we were thinking, what can we do as a men's ministry for our community? And so August the 5th, what we tentatively scheduled is a men's ministry cookout, that's what we're calling it, men's ministry cookout. Now, of course, this is, this is for the church, but the gist of the, the men's ministry cookout is to invite the community. And so uh, in, the, in the summertime, there's lots of events in the, in the area, and so um, uh, due, due to recent events, we've decided to schedule an event. <laughs> and so this event, though, is to get all of you involved. Our, our task that God has given us in God's word is to reach out into the world, proclaim the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so this will be a kind of an evangelistic type of event. So it's an opportunity for the community, the surrounding community, to come here, uh, have something to eat. We're gonna, we've got uh, some games planned. We've got, we've got some stuff uh, uh, planned out for that. I'm, I'm trying to make this as brief as I can but to, so that you all understand. Um, and so, but the, the, the main reason we want to do that is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the community. And so this event is, is, is all focused around Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And we want to share him with the community. And so that's what the event is going to be about. And so I would encourage each and every one of you to uh, be a part of that. Um, this, this week was kind of busy with VBS, but next week there'll be a sign-up sheet out in the foyer. We need men who can cook a hot dog. So I, I, I think there's guys out there that can do that because I saw it at VBS. <laughs> and so that sign-up sheet will be for, for helping out as well. And so I've already taken up quite a bit of time. Mark it on your calendar, August the 5th. Men's Ministry Cookout. It is not just for the men. It is for every 
man, woman, and child in the church and in our community. And, and we just hope to share the gospel of Jesus Christ there. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dan. And then July 8th, mark that on your calendar, we're having a roundtable discussion. Uh, the elders are hosting this for moms and dads um, just to help out get, answer some parenting questions. Be a very informal time, and uh, we hope to have a, a response time, question time, and then responses from, the, from uh, those of us that have survived. <laughs> Parenting. <laughs> us older ones. So um, come to the, you know, everybody's welcome to that. Um, please come in support uh, of, these, uh, of these families and, uh, and just show them your love and your care. And you too could probably answer some of uh, your experiences, their questions from your experiences. So with that, that ends the announcements, our call to worship is the gospel. And this is the gospel. What does the gospel mean? What's well, good news? And Paul writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Caiaphas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Christ Jesus, we thank you for leaving your place of glory, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We who were trapped in Satan's kingdom, who provided a way back to your kingdom in glory. Thank you. Lord, for taking our sins upon yourself. Sin that separated us from you. Sin that demanded death. Oh Lord, thank you for taking it on yourself, our sins, and dying there on Calvary and was buried. But Lord, to Make good your promise 
to Satan and to Adam and Eve back there in the garden. You rose again, conquering death and conquering our enemy, the devil. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your indwelling for us that have put our faith, our trust, who have come your way. Lord, I pray as we continue our worship service here this morning, would you convict our hearts of any known sin that is in our hearts right now? Show us, Lord, how we have offended you. And Lord, may we confess it. As you reveal it to us, may we confess it and make our fellowship right again, that we would be connected with you again. Lord, and Holy Spirit, I, I pray that as we sing praises to you, as we hear your word, Help us to be attentive to you. Lord, you know how, how distracted we can get, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would keep us alert. It's been a busy week, and a lot of us are just playing tired, and it's easy to fall asleep during the message time. And so, I, again, I pray that you would keep us attentive to what you would have for us. And then what is shared, Lord, may it resonate in our hearts. Would it change us? Make it change us so that we become more and more like our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray for our brother, Dave Bender. And under, under this regime of antibiotics, we pray, Lord, that this medicine would do its work. Lord, we pray for healing. And we pray that for Ed as well. Pray for wisdom for the doctors and for him. And our dear brother, Jim Anderson, who's going in for heart surgery here in a couple days. Lord, I pray for healing. Our brother AJ, who through a spider bite has been infected in, in the hospital, and Lord, we pray for healing there as well. And Lord, for all three, uh, for all four of these men, I pray too for their spiritual well-being. It's so easy to get focused on the ailment. We're in pain. But I pray, Lord, that you would help them and encourage them and give them your peace that passes all understanding. We commit those to you. We pray, Lord, for our widows and our widowers. For me, Lord, it's hard to even imagine life without my spouse. Lord, you know their loneliness. And maybe even an emptiness. Lord, I pray for them that you would encourage their hearts as well, that you 
have promised them and us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I pray for our missionaries, Sheldon and Vicki Rhodes, as they minister to kids with the replica of Goliath's spear. Lord, as they share the gospel, may kids come to know you as their Savior. We pray, too, for our WC Family of the Week, Phil and Charlene Johnson. Lord, we, we know Charlene is not able to be with us because of some physical things that are, are keeping her home. And so we pray for healing for her as well. That she'll be able to get the surgery done on her knees. We pray, Lord, that it would you would work in such a way that she could come and be here with us. Thank you for Phil's attendance to his wife as well as his faithful attendance coming here. And so we commit the Johnson family as well to you, Lord. Give them peace and wisdom. And now, Lord, as we continue singing praises to you, as we hear your word, may everything that is done during this next hour, may it bring you all the honor and bring you all the glory. We pray these things in the precious name of our Lord, our Savior, our King, Christ Jesus. Amen.
Wonderful, wonderful worship. Thank you. Thank you. We welcome uh, Brian Sproul to the piano today, helping out Adriel's ministering at another church this morning at special music. So uh, Brian agreed to come and help us. I'm just so grateful for his friendship and for his partnership in ministry. Thank you, Brian. Uh, boys and girls, you're dismissed for Bible Blast. And I'd like to ask all of you here in the worship center and those watching via live stream to meet me in God's Word at John 19. John 19, I'm going to read uh, this chapter this morning, going to set the stage for the next part of our creed 
series, our series on the Apostles' Creed. We'll be looking at uh, the fourth message in the series, but it's the third message related to the section on Jesus Christ, which forms the heart of the Apostles' Creed. Particularly today, we'll be looking at the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. This is God's Word, John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And were slapping his face. Pilate went outside and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you let, uh, to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away. Take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the law said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. 
This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. It says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots, or cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was a preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe his testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of what of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Let's pray together. And so, dear Lord, as we come to your word today, we come to a very solemn part of scripture. Any sensible person at all reading this passage is troubled by these words. They're, they're very disconcerting. They're very unpleasant, quite frankly. But for those of us who love you, Lord Jesus, Here today, we want to affirm that we believe in you. And we believe that you suffered. You suffered under Pontius Pilate and all the other trials that he endured. We believe that you were crucified. We believe that you died and that you were buried. And we worship you, we glorify you, and we devote ourselves to you because of it.
In your name we pray. Amen. The people's court. What you are about to witness is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with a case pending in civil court. Both parties have agreed to drop their claims, have their cases settled in our forum, the people's court. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have seen an episode of that television show, that American television court show in which small claims court cases are heard. Uh, actually, it's technically binding arbitration that happens in that courtroom, but that's another subject for another time. Anyway, the people's court as it showed on television, was the first reality court show that did not use actors, but actually showed, as it says, the actual cases with actual parties involved. What we just read in John 19 is real. It's real. It's not a story. It's not a myth. Not actors. It's real. Far from a pursuit of justice, rather, what unfolds might more accurately be called the kangaroo court. As we continue today on our sermon series, Creed, you'd better believe it, we come to the fourth message in the series and the third that addresses those statements about our Lord Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of the Apostles' Creed. I want you today to ponder afresh and anew the significance of this phrase, from the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Our message today is a bit dark, if I'm going to be honest. And our message today is going to be a little bit on the long side, so I'm asking you to bear with the message. The message is going to be deliberately tedious and painstaking. But for those of us who've come to know Jesus, for those of us who come to Jesus with deep devotion and reverence, I'm asking for us to patiently wade through these murky waters of this statement from the creed and all that it indicates and implies. I believe in Jesus Christ that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried so here's the bottom line of our message today. Here's the big idea for the message. I believe Jesus willingly died for our sins. We just read these words in verses 16, 17, and 18 a few moments ago. Then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away to his called place of the skull. There they crucified him. With the words of John 19 echoing in our hearts and hopefully you meditating on them in your spirit. And this phrase from the Apostles' Creed before us, I'd like to ask us to make three observations of what we should come away believing, at least these three things today. I believe Jesus' death, number one, I believe Jesus' death was the result of six unjust illegal trials. An examination of the trials that Jesus endured is a study in corruption, injustice, numerous violations and abuse of the law, and sheer abject evil. We don't have time today to do a thorough examination of the six trials Jesus was put through. Such an examination will have to wait until another time. 
A detailed look at these trials, however, pulls back the curtain and sheds light on the darkest place of the soul of humanity. For today, allow me to make just a few superficial observations about these trials and the tragic moments that we just read about in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. First of all, as I mentioned, there are six, six uh, trials, six unjust illegal trials. The, there were three unjust illegal Jewish trials. If you remember the Easter story at all, you remember that the nighttime capture of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane initiated a series of six trials, three before the Jewish religious authorities and then three before the civil authorities of Rome. All of them, all of them were illegal. Unlike most genuine trials, these did not make the pursuit of truth their primary task. No, not at all. Even a cursory understanding of the history of the people of Israel, however, reveals that first century Jews were above all a law-conscious people. So it does not come as a surprise to know that they maintained a strict procedure for hearing civil and criminal cases. The well-known and well-recognized Jewish document called the Mishnah, compiled around 200 AD, records the oral traditions handed down from one generation to another over a period of several centuries. A portion of this document describes the guidelines that governed the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which heard cases, rendered judgments, and passed sentence on the guilty. The laws, rules, and regulations represented by the Mishnah were in force during Jesus' day. The Mishnah describes the traditions that governed the Sanhedrin during the time of Jesus. The combined gospel accounts of Jesus' arrest and trials demonstrate that most, if not all, of the rules of jurisprudence were blatantly ignored. In fact, if time allowed, I could cite 18 passages from the Mishnah maybe more, that show specific infractions of the specific laws that govern the cases like the one facing our Lord Jesus. We don't have time to do a detailed review of each of these six trials, but let me just briefly rehearse the wicked treachery of this ridiculous parade of kangaroo courts. Trial number one. Trial number one, Jesus is on trial before Annas. In the Guard of Gethsemane, once the commander of the temple guard had Jesus bound, he and a small army, and that's not an exaggeration, led him down the mountain, Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem, and straight to the home of a man named Annas. Even though the old patriarch no longer ruled as high priest, he remained the head of a vast empire of organized corruption, in Jerusalem. One historian says it like this, he and his family were synonymous for their avarice and greed. That man wasn't a Christian, by the way, he was just a, just a historian, telling the facts as they were. 
So as as the events began to unfold that night, it was clear that the object of the trial was not to discover truth or to render a just verdict. That's why Jesus refused to cooperate with the mockery Annas and his cronies were making of Jewish law. So after all was said and done in Annas' house, an illegal place, by the way, to even hold a trial, Annas sent Jesus, still bound, to Caiaphas, who was then the acting high priest of the day. Trial number two. Jesus on trial before Caiaphas. So a detail of soldiers led Jesus from Anna's house to, and the procession marched toward the temple area and the home of Caiaphas, who had somehow managed to mysteriously uh, arrange a majority of the Sanhedrin to be ready and waiting, the supreme governing body of Israel, the Sanhedrin was, at least as much as Rome allowed Jewish autonomy anyway. So while Jesus was questioned, most, if not all, of the 70 members filled a large upper chamber in the high priest's palace. They presumably met for the purpose of hearing a case against Jesus, but his destiny had been decided long before he ever arrived. By the time the Sanhedrin adjourned, the sun was soon to rise on the next day, and they found uh, their charge, ah, treason against Rome. That's what we'll go with. So in the face of, re- in the face, rather, of repeated violations of the very law, that group created for the governing of the people and even themselves, the Sanhedrin put on a false face of propriety and recessed until morning to further their murderous agenda. Few were more hypocritical and corrupt than Annas and Caiaphas. No one, however, was ever more innocent than Jesus Christ. Trial number three. Jesus is on trial now before the Sanhedrin in an official setting. So with that specific charge determined and the verdict already decided, the high priest summoned the council to their official place of judgment. It was a semi-circular hall at the east end of the royal portico of the temple. The purpose of the trial was merely show. A real kangaroo court, if ever there was one. By the end of the third trial, after fishing for a suitable charge, it would both convince the Roman governor and pacify the Hebrew masses. The religious leaders had what they felt they needed. Jesus claimed to be the Christ, who Jews widely regarded, of course, as their hope for expelling the Roman oppressors. Certainly, the empire would want to rid itself of a potential revolutionary, and if Jesus were accused, the people would reject him as just another false messiah. From the religious leader's perspective, it was an ideal solution. Three unjust, illegal Jewish trials, a gross miscarriage of justice. The scene shifts to three unjust, illegal Roman trials. One before Pontius Pilate, one before Herod Antipas, and then another one again before Pontius Pilate. There's a lot of intriguing backstory leading up to Pontius Pilate's appointment as procurator of Judea. 
We don't have time to look into that fascinating series of events. But by the time Jesus ended up in Pilate's court, Pilate had a tiger by the tail, and he could not afford any trouble. After previously ending up with two deadly riots on his hands, news had traveled back to Rome of Pilate's missteps of leadership, and he had been warned to keep the peace in Judea. To add to his political woes, Pilate's friend and patron, the one who had appointed Pilate to his post as procurator of Judea, Lucius Sejanus, he was found to be the one responsible for the death of the emperor, Tiberius Caesar's son. Sejanus was promptly executed for treason, and Pilate suddenly found himself without a friend in the world. His career, and potentially even his life, was now in the balance. So here's trial number four. Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate. So as soon as their early morning meeting was over and the verdict officially recorded, the Jewish leaders delivered Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. The Jewish council had to convince Pilate that Jesus was guilty of a capital crime and therefore worthy of death. They tried to pass Jesus off as a dangerous revolutionary who was undermining the authority of the Roman Empire. As Pilate questioned Jesus, and as you read here in our passage, Jesus, Jesus, the Lord said nothing. But the chief priests, they kept accusing him and trying to wear down the governor's resistance. Interestingly enough, it is John's record that gives us the most insightful details of the Roman trials, which suggests to us that he was very close to these events as they occurred, when all the others, of course, had gone into hiding. And so when you combine all of the gospel accounts, you discover that Pilate repeatedly stated that he found no fault in Jesus. I find no fault in him. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I am innocent of this man's blood, Pontius Pilate said. Upon discovering, however, that Jesus had Galilean roots, Pilate thought that he saw a perfect way out of his quandary, and he pawned off the problem onto someone else, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. That brings us to trial number five. Jesus on trial before Herod. Herod's pathetic inter- interrogation of the Lord Jesus was nothing more than an attempt on Herod's part to satisfy his superstitious curiosity about our Lord. To refer to the interchange between the Tetrarch and the Christ as a trial is an insult to all that's decent and just. Once again, Jesus was mistreated, mocked, falsely accused, and then finally returned back to Pilate without a decision being made. And that brings us to trial number six. Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate yet again. Pilate thought that he could avoid making a decision by sending Jesus to Herod, but Herod only sent Jesus back after abusing him. Now, with a matter matter solidly and squarely before Pilate's court, there was no turning back. 
A decision had to be made by the Roman prefect. His attempts at trying to appease the crowd are classic illustrations of pathetic, cowardly leadership. Pilate offered the people a choice. Free Jesus or the the murdering insurrectionist Barabbas. To his shock and dismay, the people chose Barabbas and cried out and called en masse for Jesus' execution. Pilate had Jesus scourged within an inch of his life, hoping to garner sympathy from the people on Christ's behalf. It didn't work. The soldiers, the religious leaders, the mob, they all jeered and hurled insults. All the while, Jesus was tortured right before their very eyes. The soldiers continued their abuse by pressing a crown of two or three inch thorns down on Jesus' head. They continued with more punches and beating. They threw a cape on Jesus' flayed shoulders and mock coronation and thrust a measuring rod into his hand like a scepter. And they bowed before him in mock reverence. Hail, King of the Jews! More beating followed. They paraded, around, uh, they paraded him around the fortress courtyard, throwing objects at him from the gallery. The, they battered his head with a measuring rod, and they scourged him yet again, actually a violation of Roman law. Finally, they beat him with their fists, and they shamelessly spewed their phlegm in his face before presenting him to Pilate for final judgment. Battered, bleeding, trembling from shock, barely able to stand on his own strength, barely recognizable as a human being. Pilate made one last attempt to appease the crowd, but they loudly demanded, crucify him! Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. That did it. And so, Pilate had Jesus, whom he declared over and over, not guilty. Pilate sentenced Jesus to be crucified in order to placate the angry mob and to save his sorry hide. Pontius Pilate, a cowardly, self-serving politician. Within the hour, Jesus would take Barabbas' place on a cross at Golgotha. I believe Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Text tells us, goes on to tell us that he was crucified and he was that he died and he was buried. Here's a second observation on the text and our statement from the Creed. 
I believe Jesus' death was an historical reality. If you remember from our first message in this series, the whole Apostles' Creed was generated as a defense for the truth of the gospel and of the person particularly of Jesus Christ. Gnostics denied that Jesus was God. Some denied that he even was physically here. He was just a phantom or that there was a separation between the, the God part of Jesus and the human part of Jesus. Many rejected the idea that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had any merit or value to anybody. But I'm here to tell you that I believe Jesus' death was an historical reality. Consider the procedure of the crucifixion. After a guilty verdict was issued and the accused was scourged, that sequence of events often in and of themselves caused the death of the one that was beaten. If the accused survived the trial and scourging, then there was a walk down what was come to be known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. It's not a long distance, actually, from Pilate's court to the hill outside of Jerusalem. Crucifixion. Crucifixion. It's an ancient method of execution in which the victim is nailed and or tied to a large wooden cross. The Latin word crux speaks of a cross. The person is left to hang there until they're dead. Imagine lying down in the gravelly dirt after what Jesus went through in Pilate's court with those Roman soldiers. And then, for the sake of expediency, the victim was affixed to the cross by nails and, or like I said, tied with ropes. If the accused carried only their crossbeam, then they were nailed to that first, and then they were hoisted by ropes up to the standing vertical beam. Death could come in hours or days, depending on the exact methods, the health of those who were crucified, and then environmental conditions and circumstances. Generally, death was by asphyxiation. All the whole body weight of the person was supported by their stretched arms. The victim would have severe difficulty exhaling due to the hyper-expansion of the lungs. The sufferer would experience excruciating pain in their legs and arms and then collapse downward and then go through a vicious cycle of trying to get air and collapsing over and over. By the way, our English word excruciating comes from this very torture. The word was used to describe the extreme pain of this merciless method of torture on a cross. So I encourage you the next time you're tempted to use the word excruciating to consider that. I don't think any of us here have ever experienced excruciating pain. The victim would therefore have to draw himself up, like I said, by his arms or have his feet supported by tying uh, onto the beam or maybe a wood block. Eventually the Roman executioners were known 
to break the victim's legs, after, as we read about in the text, after he had hung for some time. They would do that in order to hasten death. Once deprived of support and unable to lift himself, the victim would die within a few minutes. In any case, if death didn't come from asphyxiation, it could result from a number of other causes, including physical shock, dehydration, and exhaustion. The accused wore a sign on the way to their execution, which was then posted on their cross and declared their crime against the empire. In Jesus' case, the sign read this, is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. I'd like to ask you to consider the people, the people of the crucifixion. Perhaps no other place is as cosmopolitan as the foot of the cross. I wonder, where are each of us? Where are you? Where am I among those who stood at the foot of the cross? Although, technically speaking, he was not at the cross. Pilate, when you think about him for a minute, don't forget, Pilate was the one who refused to live in light of the truth. He had an opportunity to execute justice, but in his cowardice, he simply refused to do so and gave in to the angry mob before him. Pilate chose to follow the path of expediency, compromise, and appeasement, even though the truth of Jesus' words and works directed him toward a different path. Think of those soldiers. We read about them extensively in chapter 19. You can let your eyes just go down the text and you can see that after the trials and the time in Pilate's court, the soldiers continued in their violence against the Lord Jesus. Soldiers persisted in their treacherous, torturous treatment of the Lord Jesus. They twisted this crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they put that robe on him, they took him away, they crucified him. They took his clothes. He was on that cross, bare naked. They gambled for his clothing. They fixed that sponge and put it to his mouth. Finally, they came. Being dead, they pierced the Lord Jesus' side. Religious leaders, they were there. These are the members of the Sanhedrin, supposedly a combined governing institution from among the elite Pharisees and Sadducees, and particularly the Annas crime family, as I call them, the men directly responsible for the gross miscarriage of justice that led Jesus to his death. They're all there. was their lying and misuse and abuse of power and position that put Jesus on that cross. These are the ones who distorted, misinterpreted, and misrepresented God's word, both in its written form and in its incarnate state right before them in order to protect their own turf, to perpetuate their self-styled, self-focused, arrogant, religious deception. You read it right there, their words, crucify him, crucify him, take him, crucify him. 
Pilate says to them, he's your king. Should I crucify your king? And then they say, the Jewish leaders said, we have no king but Caesar. Imagine. Such blasphemy on the lips of the so-called religious leaders of the Jewish people. Continue to consider the people there at the cross, the crucifixion. There's this crowd of onlookers, the mob that gathered at the cross, hurled insults and false accusations at the Son of God as he hung in humiliation on the cross. Some of these may have been the very voices who raised their hosannas in acclamation of Jesus just a few days before. Fickle crowd. Now, they, crowd for, they cried for his execution. They derided him and they took in the spectacle of the Lord Jesus suffering and death as garish, vulgar, crass entertainment. Despicable behavior and disgusting treatment of the king of the universe, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. There's those thieves who hung there with Jesus on Golgotha's Hill. We know from the other gospel accounts these thieves insulted Jesus. Thankfully and fortunately, one later repented and called out to Jesus for mercy and for forgiveness. And he received both. By the way, these men weren't mere shoplifters. They were likely conspirators with Barabbas and involved in his acts of rebellion against the empire. They were no doubt murderous, violent men. By placing Jesus' cross between these two malefactors, Pilate may have intended to further to insult the Jews, implying that their king was nothing but a common criminal himself. God intended it, our as a fulfillment of prophecy found right in Isaiah 53. Finally, there is a little bit of a ray of hope among that crowd. There are the women. The women mentioned in our text apparently had been, in, been there at the foot of the cross through Jesus' entire ordeal. In the final moments before Jesus' life ebbed away, the women were not able to watch his suffering, the scripture tells us, at close range. You can imagine how horrific it must have been. Mark 15 tells us that they had to look on from a distance. I want to mention that their sympathetic loyalty was in sharp contrast. Sharp contrast to the disciples who accept for John were nowhere to be found. MIA missing in action. This impressive group of ladies had been with Jesus since the days of his Galilean ministry, traveling with him and the disciples, caring for their needs. And now in these final hours of execution and crucifixion, they are still at Jesus' side. 
There's the Apostle John. He delicately and carefully refers to himself in the passage that we read as an eyewitness to all of these things. Of the 12 disciples who had spent more than three years with the Lord Jesus, John is the only one, the only one who found the faith, courage, and devotion to be present at the Savior's darkest hour. His staunch fidelity and commitment extended beyond his love for Christ, but also to the mother of our Lord, Mary. John, John, not one of Jesus' siblings. John is the one who cared for Mary to her dying day. John's presence at the cross must have been sweet comfort and blessing to our Lord Jesus when nearly all others forsook him. Closing paragraph of John 19, two other men are mentioned. Again, very notable, remarkable men in contrast to the other disciples. You see their names there, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It's hard for us to imagine the significance of the mention of these two men in the record of Scripture. They were both members of the Sanhedrin. That austere body was responsible for the unjust, illegal Jewish trials that led to the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. Undoubtedly, these two men must have tried to speak reason into that assembly, but their words and counsel went unheeded. These men had witnessed the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and had come to terms with his mission of service and sacrifice by personally devoting themselves to him. The record of Scripture speaks for itself. We read it there in John 19, 38 to 40. These men are the ones responsible for providing for the respectful and dignified burial of our Lord Jesus. What a remarkable act of faith and devotion on their part. People at the crucifixion, of course, Jesus is there. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and then buried. The depth of Jesus' suffering and humiliation evade our comprehension. But there he is, Jesus, Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, this is a point of application where, let me ask you, where do you stand among the throng at the foot of Jesus' cross? I believe Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, in these final moments, I'm going to ask you to bear with me. Here's another observation I want to make on our text and this profound statement from the Apostles' Creed. I believe Jesus' death had purpose. What sense can we make of the incredibly brutal, cruel, malicious, vindictive, evil execution and death 
of a perfectly innocent man. What purpose, if any, can be found in all this apparently pointless pain and meaningless misery? Well, I want to suggest to you that there are indeed deep and profound purposes in the death of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded, dear ones, of these things on a regular basis. Too many pulpits across our country today ignore these things and speak of things of far lesser value and significance. I believe Jesus' death had a purpose. I believe Jesus' death brought glory to God the Father first. Here's a marvelous insight that we glean from John's gospel record that speaks to this very point. Back in John chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he predicts, he predicts his crucifixion. And this is what he says. Now my soul is troubled. Knowing that Jesus knew what he was going to go through and now that you know what Jesus went through, those words should have a certain weight to you. Jesus saying, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came, not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what? kind of death he was about to die. Oh, dear ones, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of human history and back before that, but you remember back at the beginning of human history where mankind stuck their fist in God's face and said, we will go our own way. Thank you very much. And actually, even before that, God has had a redemptive plan to bring mankind back to himself. The death of Jesus, God's son, accomplished what nothing else could and demonstrates his incomprehensible love to and for us. I'm reluctant to even mention it because some of us know it so easily that we just kind of let it go by. It's John 3.16. Think of this in the context of what we just talked about. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Would you give your son to go through what Jesus went through? I have four sons. I've got news for you. I wouldn't do it. But God did. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Don't ever lose sight of that. Cross not only manifested God's great glory, the cross amplified God's great glory. That's one marvelous purpose we discover through Jesus' death on the cross. Here's another one. I believe Jesus' death paid the price for our sin. I encourage you to cross out the word R and write my there. I believe Jesus paid the price for my sin. It's one of the greatest magnificent truths you will ever read in all of God's word. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we've talked about this many times before, I know, but it really must be said right here in the context of this message. Sin is violating the character, the will, and the word of God. Every one of us is guilty of sin against God. We are guilty as sin. You know it, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Consequence of sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You know that. Sin's destructive effect impacts us on so many levels, all that be, can be equated with death of a kind. Sin separates at every turn. Sin separates us from one another. Sin even separates us from ourselves, but most tragically and most significantly of all, sin separates us from God, the only one who can help us. Unless you doubt it, Jesus knows all about that. Matthew, Mark 15, Mark 15, 33 and 34, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I don't think that we will ever be able to comprehend the significance of the abandonment and separation from the Father that Jesus experienced at his crucifixion. But you and I are also separated from God in an awful state of sinful depravity. Prophet Habakkuk, in the opening verses to his prophetic words, says, God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And this is why the father had to turn his face away from his son on a cross. Jesus took upon himself our sin at Golgotha. He became sin for us. And that caused a singular event which up to that point had never occurred before. A separation between God the Father and God the Son. What happened on the cross of Jesus Christ bridges the gap between God and sinful humanity. What happened there provides us with a reliable and just forgiveness of sin we so desperately need, don't deserve, and cannot do for ourselves. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. What a great purpose of grace, justice, and forgiveness was accomplished when Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin and my sin. 
Here's another purpose. In Jesus' death on the cross. I believe Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous wrath. We read an extraordinary statement in Mark's gospel record of the events surrounding our Lord Jesus' death on the cross. Mark 15, 37 and 38. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? What does this mean? That curtain in the temple there in Jerusalem separated what was called the most holy place from the holy place. And the holy place of various rituals, Jewish rituals were accomplished. But in that most holy place, behind that curtain was something very significant. The high priest would enter the most holy place just once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer a special sacrifice before God on behalf of the people. In the Old Testament, God's glory was manifest above the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Can you even imagine the combined sense of terror, awe, and excitement for the high priest upon entering that sacred space and beholding the glory of God? I can't either. High priest only entered once a year and he dared do so only by fulfilling very specific instructions. If he varied from these instructions in the least little bit, he would be struck dead on the spot. Why? Because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin, unrighteousness, wickedness, and disobedience. If sin presents itself before God, it is his duty to express his just wrath and judgment on that sin. The whole of the Old Testament law was God's provision to stay his right of judgment against sin. But when his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross, he bore the Father's wrath upon himself so that you and I would not have to do that. And when that veil, when that curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, God declared, my wrath is satisfied. The Bible word is propitiated. God said, my wrath is satisfied, it's propitiated in my son's death on the cross outside of Jerusalem. Don't take my word for it. Hear the word of the Lord from Scripture, Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to Everyone who believes. Galatians 3, 10 to 14, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit, of faith, uh, promised spirit through faith. 
we can neither comprehend nor accept God's love until we recognize and understand God's just wrath at our sin. The death of Jesus Christ on that Judean hillside satisfies God's anger at our sin, at my sin, at my rebellion once and for all. Here's another purpose found in the death of Jesus. I believe Jesus' death gains us access to God. This is obviously closely related to the last point that I just made. Not only is God's wrath satisfied through Jesus' death, but now we have direct access to God. That's what that torn curtain at the temple tells us. Here's another passage of Scripture that powerfully makes this point. That is how Jesus' death gains us access to God. Hebrews chapter nine. Uh, excuse me. Hebrews chapter ten, nineteen to twenty-two. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, the sanctuary, by the way, is a reference to that most holy place. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great High Priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Where once we had no access to God, now we have direct and complete access to God. Each one who trusts in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is a believer priest. If we have put our trust and our faith in the words and the works of Jesus Christ and Christ alone, we gain direct access to God no more separation, no more judgment, but free and direct access to God. What purpose can be found in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? That's pretty good. Amen. There's at least one more. I thank you for your patience. I believe Jesus' death secures our eternal destiny. Let me ask you, do you know your eternal destiny? I mean, for sure. Yes. Do you know it? Do you have a sense of security in what awaits you after this life? If you know Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, you can be assured of awaits you after death. Let me simply share two marvelous sections of God's Word that give us this unshakable assurance in life and death. Again, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Let's keep, let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Corinthians 15, marvelous chapter on the resurrection, not only of Christ's resurrection, but what awaits us in resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 21, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Now in the next message in the series, we'll get to the resurrection. Thank you. I know you're looking forward to that rather than the heaviness of this service. But pondering today, I think we'll make that all the sweeter. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. 
If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. But as it is. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. I hope you share the meaning behind the big idea of our message today. I believe Jesus willingly died for our sins. <clears throat> Centuries ago, on the south coast of China, high up on a hill overlooking the harbor of Macau, Portuguese settlers built an enormous church. They believed it would weather time and they placed upon the front wall of this church building a massive bronze cross that stood high into the sky. Not too many years later, however, a typhoon came and God's fingers swept away man's handiwork and the entire church building was pushed into the ocean and down the hillside as debris, except, except the front wall and that bronze cross that stood high. Centuries later, there was a shipwreck you know, just out a little beyond that harbor. Some died, a few lived. One of the men that was hanging on to wreckage from the ship moving up and down in the crest of the ocean as the swells were moving, was disoriented and frightened and he, he didn't know where land was. As he would come up on the swell, he'd spot that cross, just a tiny form in the distance. And he, it was his testimony that it was the view of that cross that inspired hope and caused the man to hang on until his rescue. His name was Sir John Bowring. When he made it to land and lived to tell the story, he wrote, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. The, the last verse of the song lyric he wrote, by the way, it's in your hymn book if you want to look it up. When the woes of life o'ertake me, Hopes deceive and fears annoy. Never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. That's the power of the cross. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus willingly died for our sins. 
I believe Jesus willingly died for my sin. What do you believe? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a hard message. It's hard to hear of these things. Please don't let us allow the echoes of other lesser things. Still the voice of your spirit in this sacred hour as we contemplate you, O great Christ. That you would love us. That you would love me this way is more than I can understand. It's more than I can comprehend. It's been a hard week preparing for this message. It's been a hard thing to deliver it. But Lord, I pray you would drive my devotion for you deeper. That I would not let your sacrifice be in vain in my life. I pray this for all my brothers and sisters here. That we would love you and be devoted to you And look for that day in glory when we're reunited, where we're reunited with you face to face. Oh Lord of glory. Oh Lamb of God. Oh Savior, Jesus Christ. We worship you. And we thank you for the power of your cross. Please stand.
not a tragedy at the cross. It was triumph. Jesus was not a victim at the cross. He was victor at the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote to us in 2 Corinthians verses 5, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. 
And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Walk with the king. Be a blessing.